Reflections on the Gospel of John Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 When Jesus shows up, it's a spring. And when he leaves, it's a cistern. That's really amazing. That's really amazing. The, his, the impact of his arrival, of his incarnation, is to render the existing uh, system, the existing source, uh, defunct. Turn it from spring water into stagnant water. Because it is, and I think it's very structurally very important to this gospel. When Jesus shows up, the temple is surpassed. When Jesus shows up, the ritual washings are, are done away with. When Jesus shows up, the, the, the curtain of the temple, of the, of the inner sanctum of the temple, is rent from top to bottom. When Jesus shows up, conventional religion is undermined. And here, a symbol for the, for the uh, Samaritans. Religiosity is Jacob's well, and it's a spring when he gets there, and it's a cistern when he leaves. So it's not just that he comes and says, I've got something that's even better than this, but his very arrival undermines and breaks down the, 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 the healing power of what was there before him. Before he gets there, the, the benefits that flow from this religious system flow as the water did in that story from Ezekiel 47, flows out from the temple and makes everything perfectly healthy and abundant and all that. That's the way it is before Jesus arrives. When Jesus arrives, he shows you the other side of that, which is, which is Psalm 69. He shows you that all of that exists because of the victim whose face and voice you do not see or hear and, and, and not seeing and hearing, hearing it makes, the, makes all of that possible. And since the crucifixion reveals that starkly, it undermines the, the ability of that system to produce that kind of peace. That's a footnote, and it would take a long time to get into that. I want to go back to the question of promiscuity, psychological promiscuity, because it's, a, it's, it's the epidemic of our time. And, uh, and th this gospel says it is a barrier to this encounter. Jesus has to dispense with that, bring it out into the open and dispense with it if this, uh, if this rebirth or this renewal uh, is going to take place. Jeremiah is the one who speaks of the, of the people of Israel's uh, religious promiscuity. And he speaks of it in terms of abandoning the living water for cisterns that are cracked and hold no water. And so all of this, a lot of this is taking place with Jeremiah in the background. But Jeremiah also speaks, as most of the prophets do, but he speaks of the, of the uh, religious promiscuity of the people of Israel in the starkest of terms. And I'll read you a passage from the second uh, chapter of Jeremiah. It is long ago since you broke your yoke burst your bonds and said, I will not serve. And yet on every high hill and under every spreading tree you have lain down like a harlot. The high hills and the spreading trees were these little, cult, these little rural uh, sacrificial shrines where they would go and offer sacrifices to the 
to the rain god or the you know the gods of the crops or something else and these things were were periodically descending into human sacrifice they were regarded by the by uh, the uh, the prophets as the worst abomination because they always flirted with human sacrifice and occasionally descended into it and this is precisely what jeremiah is accusing uh, the israelites of he says you've you did this very bold and i would say modern thing you said huh, no more from me buddy i'm not a churchgoer i'm not a joiner i do my own thing i'm not going to bow down you know etc <laughs> and he says it was a matter, it was the twinkle of an eye before you were bowing down to whatever fashion was coming along, completely submissive to it, thinking all the while that you were free. And then he says, look at your footprints in the valley. And the valley he's referring to is the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is the valley where human sacrifices occurred, which is the, which is the valley... Ben-Hinnom, which was, when it was translated from Hebrew into Greek, is the word Gehenna, which is the word in the New Testament for hell. So when Jesus speaks of uh, hell in the New Testament, there is in the background of that human sacrifice, the place of human sacrifice. So, but Jeremiah says, look at your footprints in the valley. Why do you have to look at your footprints? Because you live in this mystified world. You don't realize what you did. Go back and look at your footprints. It's sort of like what's happening now with, those, with all those murders that took place in El Salvador. You know? it's, it's as though a modern Jeremiah is saying to the, to, the, to the policymakers in Washington in the 1980s, hey folks, go back and look at your footprints. See? Look at what you have done. You couldn't see it at the time because at the time all you could think of was how you know, the, 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 your opponent's were the were, you know the, these horrible demons and your and your allies were the moral equivalent of the founding fathers? That's all you could see, and so you didn't notice it. So now the voice of the prophetic voice says, "Look at your footprints in the valley." And that's just what Jeremiah is saying. You've done it, folks. It's human sacrifice, and acknowledge what you have done. But the point I want to make here is not so much. The point I want to make is that promiscuity here in Jeremiah. It's religious promiscuity leads to sacrifice. It's exactly the connection. It leads to this crazy frenzy, finally. And then he says, a frantic, underscoring the relationship between this and promiscuity. When I say promiscuity, understand, I'm not talking about sexual promiscuity. That's part of it. That's just a symptom of it. That's a symptom of some other deeper promiscuity. He says, a frantic she-camel running in all directions, bolts for the desert, snuffing the breeze and desire. Who can control her when she is in heat? Whoever looks for her will have no trouble. He will find her with her mate, exclamation point, irony, with her mate, meaning her mate for the next fortnight. It's, a, it's complete promiscuity. It's a, it's a, well, the, point, the reason I read that is because the biblical understanding is that there is a link between psychological promiscuity and the sacrificial frenzy. The... the, 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 the the setting in motion of the social and psychological forces that result in sacrifice. You may have seen a few weeks ago there was a story out of Lakewood in Southern California, a little suburban community in Southern California where there was a group of, uh, of uh, big men on campus, on the high school campus, j- jocks, uh, who called themselves the, the uh, Spur Posse, 
and uh, they had a contest going uh, to see how many sexual encounters they could have. And the ones with the most number of sexual encounters had the highest prestige. It was just a ranking system. And everybody in the school knew it was going on. And uh, it didn't have, it, all it had to do was, was numbers, notches on your gun, you know, just numbers. Some of these guys had dozens and dozens of them. And some of them were with girls as young as 10, and some of them were without the consent of these girls. Okay. So this all came to light. Some of these kids got arrested and taken to jail. And uh, last Monday, there appeared in the New York Times a little follow-up story about what happened when all but one of them got released uh, pending investigation. Remember, Jesus shows up at the well at noon. The well is where, where the meeting place takes place between the, the man and the woman in the biblical world. Okay? And noon is the... Uh, okay. There was a little echo. I think that's one of the reasons I thought of this story. It begins this way. It was lunchtime at Lakewood High School and the big men on campus were strutting their stuff at the local Taco Bell. Eric, I'll leave out last names, Eric, a 17-year-old football star, swaggered in a T-shirt reading No Crybabies, stretched taut across his pectorals. I got the power, I got the finesse, I got everything, Eric declaimed to no one in particular. Eric and eight of his friends, members of a group called the Spur Posse, had spent several days in jail accused of molesting and raping girls as young as 10. Now all but one had been released while investigations continued. The boys returned to school this week to a hero's welcome. Their status enhanced and their scrapbooks thicker by several press clippings. Lakewood's mayor, Mark Titel, said he hoped the town would use its notoriety as an, as an occasion for introspection. But he said it was, he was not optimistic since the boys seemed unrepentant, the parents lenient, and the other students inclined to lionize the athletes and vilify their accusers. We need to look at what kind of values we are communicating to our kids, said Mr. Titel. We have some real problems here, and promiscuity is one of them. For too long, we've accepted that that's the way it is. Well, that kind of resignation sends a message to kids that nothing's wrong with it. Eric and his friends, still reading from the story, Eric and his friends say they have heard that message. Quote, They pass out condoms, teach sex education, and pregnancy this and pregnancy that, the boy said, after polishing off a nacho supreme and necking with his girlfriend in a booth at the Taco Bell, but they don't teach us any rules, end quote. It's very important, as with some of the stories I dealt with last week, not to immediately fall into some moral swaggering of our own here about this thing. It's a symptom of a psychological crisis. And, the, and it's psychological promiscuity, inability to bond, and the, and, and, uh, and the social consequences of that. Now, this kind of stuff will produce the sacrificial frenzy. It will eventually produce the sacrificial frenzy. Orgoglion, the man who's worked with Girard on the psychological implications of the mimetic theory, uh, French psychiatrist, says this. Uh, he's talking about the crisis, the, the sacrificial crisis or the, uh, the social crisis that's generated by mimetic frenzy. And he says the crisis will either be one 
of violent rivalry or one of orgasmic union. The rage of combat and the drunkenness of violence on one hand or the climax of sexual intercourse and the intensity of the orgasm on the other. These are the two critical situations for the interdividual relation. And that's a term that is very booberesque, by the way, but it's a term that's come out of the Girardian studies. Uh, but the, the point I want to make is that when the crisis is, uh, begins to manifest itself, that you get these two phenomena, uh, violent rivalry and a sexuality, a, a, an expression of sexual sexuality, which is, which is orgasmic but not intimate. And the, the, the most dangerous sta stage of this situation is, is the stage which we are now seeing in places in our culture, which is the gradual uh, indistinguishability of sex and violence. That is the Dionysian frenzy coming on, the Dionysian frenzy which ends in sacrificial violence the gradual indistinguishability between sex and violence. And if you think of what's happening in Bosnia, if you think of what's happening in MTV uh, you know, music videos, what's happening in rap music, uh, what's happening with Calvin Klein ads, I mean, it's all over the place. The indistinguishability between sex and violence in the January 24, 1993 edition of the San Francisco Examiner, there was, appeared a story by the Examiner's pop music critic, Barry Walters, entitled, Music Videos Turn Up the Heat, subtitled, Yesterday's Taboos Are Becoming Today's Trends. And he called attention to a music video, among others, called Wish by a group named Nine Inch Nails. Uh, and he said that this uh, video was, now, was, was then appearing several times a day on MTV. Okay, and here's what he said about it. Here's, he describes what happens there. The band is in a cage. The fans are all male and have that, quote, urban primitive look, parentheses, shirtless, tattoos, pierced nipples, shaved heads, in, in parentheses. They're crashing into each other like guys, who, like guys do at most heavy metal and alternative rock shows these days. But their interaction is noticeably violent and sexual. By the end, a group of fans burst through the cage with a power tool as if they're about to rape the musicians. Throughout all this, a muscled black man in loincloth is suspended from the ceiling. The, at the... At the Dionysian ritual, the point at which the distinctions between male and female, between pleasure and pain, between sex and violence are swept away, is the point at which the ritual is about to settle down to its sacrificial business. Now this is very graphic and uh, has, it's a long way from the Samaritan woman's promiscuity. But we are too. We are too. And we, as long as we think of it as sexual promiscuity or as having to do fundamentally with a moral uh, failure, I think we miss the psychological catastrophe that it's a symbol for. If you look at this scene at, uh, that's described in this MTV video that I just read about and this story in Lakewood, you say, is there bonding taking place? Because without bonding, there's no self. Mm -hmm. Is there bonding? Lo and behold, there is bonding.
It's a very crude form of bonding. And I tell you, it's a very dangerous thing. And those are the kind of bonding phenomenon that the world's in store for, just as in that Japanese story I read at the beginning of the class. That's the kind of bonding we're in store for unless we can find another kind of bonding. Because we cannot, the self in the midst of its deconstruction will grasp at some bonding ritual. And if it, and if it has to be one of these, it will go for it. And, uh, and in a world where there's nothing else really seriously being offered, uh, what else? Well, the whole thing I'm trying to call attention to is, is that underneath the moral situation, underneath the sexual one, underneath the violence, is a psychological emergency in our time. As I said at the beginning, I think that the Enlightenment idea of individuality is, 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 is collapsing. And we're in a situation where people are with no, nothing underneath that are falling into these rituals of bonding which uh, are primitive. It's the primitive sacrificial crisis. We're living in a world where we're facing the primitive sacrificial crisis. We're, we're a long way from the situation in Bosnia, but the people living in Yugoslavia five years ago were a long way from the situation in Bosnia. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's going to happen to us right away. I don't think it is. But I, but I, I feel that we, don't, we have to understand the scope of this problem. And I, and I think that the gospel is speaking precisely to the issue at hand. It is talking about how the self reconstitutes itself uh, in, in a way that is loving and sane and civil and promotes a, a kind of human intimacy and uh, a communal... Uh, relationships and all, all the rest of it. But let me just close by returning to the Samaritan woman. She says to Jesus, uh, I know you're the Messiah. I know, no, she says, I know the Messiah is coming and when he gets here he'll teach us everything. And Jesus says, he of whom you speak, I am. And he uses this ego emi, the Greek ego emi, which is the Greek translation of what uh, uh, the burning bush told Moses. Yahweh in the burning bush said, uh, I am who am. The Greek translation, ego in me. Jesus is using the divine I am. At that moment, uh, the disciples come and they're like John said, the disciples return and they are amazed that Jesus is talking to this woman. But they're a little intimidated. They don't ask him about it. And then we're, we're told the following. The woman put down her water jar and hurried back to the town to tell the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. I wonder if he is the Christ. This brought people out of the town and they started walking toward him. A couple of things just to conclude. She put down her water jar. To me, that's a marvelous, marvelous surrender. Because when she said to him earlier, you have no bucket, the well is deep, etc., she's talking about how you get by, how you cope, how you cope in a world which is pretty tough. And in our world, we would say, well, how do you cope with this crisis of the self or this, this breakdown or this isolation, this alienation? How do you cope? Well, you, you become pretty crafty about how you get by. Well, when this woman puts down her water jar, she surrenders, I think, her way of coping which is getting in her way. It's preventing an encounter. 
And by the way, the term here, water jar, is exactly the same term used in the, in the Cana story, at, at the wedding story at Cana, where the water jar was the ritual jar of ritual washing which was dispensed with once it had become the wine started to flow. Uh, the image I would have us uh, leave with is the image that the gospel leaves us with there at the very end, and that is this moment when the, the Samaritan woman puts down her water jar and walks straight back into the village and speaks the truth to the very people that had shunned her and has an effect because of that truth. That somehow the putting down of the water jar uh, and, the, and, the, and the authority and dignity with which she then conducts herself. I would ask, where is, what, where's the source of, of a kind of centered dignity that is, that is, uh, that is immune to all this craziness? That's really what we have to find out. That's I right. mean, it's not more. This is there are moral problems and there are social problems and. All, and all that and violence and crazy perverted sexuality and all the rest but that's not the really the question is the question of the self we we really are in this amazing thing where we think there is this thing called the self that somehow will make it through it is a, there is the self is constituted as Buber said in relationship and unless we find a, a way in which that uh, in which a self can be constituted, which is coherent, sane, civil, dignified, loving, generous, self-sacrificing, we are in terrible trouble because we cannot create those old-fashioned cultural selves the way we used to because the sacrificial system for creating them has been destroyed by the crucifixion. So how are we going to create those units of dignity and love in a world that's gone nuts. I've been reading Dostoevsky a little bit and, and, uh, and Father Z- Zazama in uh, Brothers Karamazov. It's marvelous. He's marvelous because he looks out and he sees these, this wretchedness going on and he sees the suffering in it. And that's what we don't see. When this guy steps, when this guy in Lakewood walks into the Taco Bell and he says, I got the power, I got the this, I got the that, uh, declaiming this to no one in particular, what we see is this arrogant little kid you just wanted boxing. But what Father Zazima saw, or would have seen, would have seen, it would have been suffering. And if we could just have those eyes... That's right, hell on earth. If we could just recognize in what appears to be arrogance and and depravity and all the rest of it, if we could recognize the suffering in it, mm-hmm. we could connect with it in a healing way, in a forgiving way, yeah. uh, and not contribute to it by just haranguing it uh, morally. The liturgical calendar exercises a gravitational pull on me that I cannot resist, particularly in those times of the year uh, such as the one that we're in right now, I find no matter what we're dealing with, Homer, Shakespeare, Dante, the Bible, doesn't matter, uh, when the liturgical, when the important 
points in the liturgical cycle come around, uh, I find myself talking about them or thinking about them, uh, and, and no matter what's on the on the agenda. And that's how it is today. But there was an opportunity to to uh, have the material at least in to some degree coincide with that because there is an exegetical question about uh, this gospel. You know, the Gospel of John, some people think, was put together uh, in, a, in a kind of haphazard way, or at least the, the, the text we have now is a little bit haphazardly rearranged. And a number of uh, scholars think that, that what's in chapter 6 really belongs before what's in chapter 5. So based on that uh, uh, grasping at that exegetical excuse, I've rearranged them so, so that we can talk about the chapter 6 today and chapter 5 next week. Chapter 6 is the, is the bread of life discourse, the feeding of the multitude and the bread of life discourse. And I wanted to do that because uh, this is Holy Week and uh, it was uh, Holy Thursday. One of the classes I gave this week was on Holy Thursday. And the whole question of the Eucharist comes up. And as you know, uh, in John's uh, Last Supper, there's no, the Last Supper is not the occasion for the Eucharistic uh, meal so much as it is the occasion for another prophetic sign, namely the washing of feet. So if we are going to uh, pl try to plumb the depths of John's Eucharistic sensibility, we have to do it uh, with respect to chapter 6, the Bread of Life Discourse. And so I thought this would be the time to do that. What John has to say about these matters is quite scandalous to... Uh, to the people of the first century, and uh, I think once we peel back our conventionalities about it, it'll be scandalous to us. So much so that at the very end of the chapter 6 discourse, uh, the evangelist tells us this, after this, many of his disciples left him and stopped going with him, which touches on one of the fears that I always have about, uh, about broaching some of these subjects, that, they will, that I will be forced to confess things uh, that will cause something like parallel to that uh, to happen here in our little sessions. I don't want to encourage that. But Anyway, the three basic things going on in chapter 6. One is the feeding of the multitude, and one is the preaching of Jesus on, on Passover themes, and the third is the Johannine meditation on the deeper meaning of all of these, of all these things. What I'd like to do is explore uh, these things at the literal level, at the symbolic level, at the level of scriptural understanding, at the anthropological level, and at the sacramental level, which is way more than we have time for, uh, but I want to try to do as much of it as we can. First of all, the feeding of the multitude. For John, there are no miracles uh, in Jesus' ministry, they're only signs. What we call miracles, he calls signs. That is to say, they don't have to do with the thing itself, they have to do with its effect on people. Uh, the purpose of these, of these uh, signs is to change people uh, and not something inherent in the thing itself. Well, uh, but, uh, but I think miracle has a place in our understanding of the New Testament uh, uh, and the mission of Jesus. So, I'm going to use the word miracle just for a minute, maybe in conjunction with the word sign, to think about this thing. What is a miracle? Uh, is it a miracle to take a few loaves of bread and a few dried fish 
and uh, pulled more and more and more of them out of a basket. Is that a miracle? Well, at one level, you would say it's a miracle. Certainly, it's a, it's a, but it's a kind of Houdini miracle. It's not a miracle that's terribly worthy of. Seems to me a miracle has to, has to change the human heart. So I would define miracle as something that changes the human heart. And as the author of this gospel knows so well, uh, the pulling of uh, great numbers of loaves and fish out of a basket that didn't seem to be able to hold that many uh, isn't inherently capable of changing the human heart. Uh, it's inherently capable of causing a great fascination, but it's not inherently capable of changing the human heart. So I don't think that qualifies as a miracle. So if there's a miracle in this story, we have to look deeper than that. And I would like to look uh, for the real miracle in this story, which would have to be the changing of the human heart. So I will tell what I think happened. This is always arrogant, and people shouldn't even bother to try, really, because what we have is the text, and we should be satisfied with it. But I think when it comes to, to retrieving the miraculous event, uh, it's worth the exercise of imagining what might have happened. So here's my, for what it's worth, my uh, sense of what, happened at the feeding the multitude. First of all, there's a great crowd and they have come out to hear this religious teacher. These are religious people. These are religious Jews, observant Jews. And they have come out to hear him some distance from their homes and villages. And it's mealtime. Now, mealtime is a very delicate time for religious Jews of the first century because their dietary laws were perhaps the most salient form of their daily religious life. That is to say, uh, what you ate, how you ate it, what kind of preparations you went uh, through before you ate it and afterwards, and most especially, with whom you ate it. Because if you ate it with, if you shared your meal with a someone who was morally tainted, a pagan or a sinner, say, you became tainted by that association and you became uh, infected. And so there was, in the same way that we think of infections, uh, we think of medical infections, you see, if, imagine this, imagine this crowd and you know that there are a number of them that have some dreaded disease that you could get if you got too close to them and shared a meal, you see. Then you get the anxiety that must have been there for the people who had come there because they were strangers to one another by and large. And it was mealtime. And this, marvelously, the, this evangelist says they were milling around. So there's a crowd. That's one problem. The second problem is that, they are, that they're anxious. And we know what they're anxious about because they're anxious that they might defile themselves by eating next to someone who is, who is less than uh, an upright and righteous uh, religious person. These were not uh, uh, modern urbanites. These were people who understood what you had to do in order to make a half day's journey away from your home or your village. You took your food with you because, precisely because, uh, you had to make sure you ate the right food. So surely these people had their food with them and it was food that w had been properly uh, prepared beforehand so that it would be within the bounds of the ritual constraints. But nobody is producing this food for precisely these same reasons, you see, because to produce it would be to begin the meal and share with whoever was in one's presence and so on. So the food 
in my imagination, is still in the pouches. Except there is this one small boy, and I think it's important that it was this small boy. This is a boy who is below the age of r religious maturity. You could say he's not bar mitzvahed yet. Uh, he's a young boy, and he doesn't, he's not aware of, of what lies behind all this agitation. He's not caught up in it. And out of a, an act of just simple generosity, he says, hey, I have some loaves and some fish. He's the only one to offer it out like that. And Jesus takes it, and he, then he says this marvelous thing. He says, tell them to sit down. This is like musical chairs. <laughs> tell them to sit down right where they are, right now. Stop the music. You see, and all of a sudden, the milling has to stop. One has to, you know, Chesterton said, you can, you can make your friends and you can make your enemies, but God makes your next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. You know, the, the die is cast. And now, the, the, the sort of jockeying for position in the social arrangement, moving the social furniture around is over. There they're sitting. And then in this gospel, because it is not fundamentally a Eucharistic uh, symbol at this point in the story, this gospel does not have Jesus breaking the bread. That's a Eucharistic image. But I think we have to read that into this to really get the understanding of what goes on. So if you'll allow me, I'll introduce that uh, notion. Because Jesus does distribute these, uh, these loaves and fish. But I would say that he stands in my mind's eye. He stands before this crowd and he holds a loaf up and he breaks it. Now, the, that act, symbolic act, resonates at many levels and I want to try to touch upon them. He breaks it as an act of sharing. That is to say, the when we read breaking bread, when we say that, when we use that idiom, breaking bread, we mean sharing. If I break off a piece of bread just in order to put it in my mouth, that doesn't qualify as breaking. That, that's, that's chewing with your fingers. It's preliminary chewing. It's not break. The breaking of bread is, a, is an act of generosity. Jesus stands before them and he breaks a, a loaf of bread and he hands part of it to this person who's a total stranger to him and part of it to this person likewise and shows this community, this, pe this group of people, this crowd, he gives them a, an act to imitate. He shows them what to do. He breaks the bread and hands it. And he takes the fish and likewise distributes it. Now, uh, I want to explore a little bit the, what the breaking of the bread means. It means sharing, but it also means the shattering. The breaking shatters something. Remember, it involves at least the possibility of a violation of, religious, of the religious code. And that religious code was all important for first century uh, Orthodox Jews. It shatters a cultural envelope that is, that is centered around these dietary laws. It also shatters the psychological coherence and social orientation of the people for whom that cultural envelope has been the defining 
principle. So the breaking happens at a number of levels. It's a symbolic act, but it, is also, it also has social psychological ramifications. And as Jesus breaks it, people who see him do that, see, they imitate him. He is their model. They, they see that it's possible to, to disregard these, these uh, ritual strictures in order to participate in a, in a living community, and they begin to follow suit. Slowly but surely, they are freed from the grip of their religious confines. And they begin, begin, I say, to experience a radically new form of companionship. You know, the word means to share bread with one another. At the end, it's very important that Jesus says, gather up the fragments. I just said this breaking the bread had social and psychological consequences. I think those are the ones we have to be have in our minds when we when we read the verse which says in which Jesus says gather up the fragments. It is not enough to break those social confines. It's not enough to leave uh, people uh, to break the envelope of the cultural uh, world and to leave uh, people without it. But one must take those fractured social arrangements and fractured social, uh, psychological uh, selves and gather them up. And I want to return at the very end of the day to this business of gathering up the fragments. But for the moment, I want to go to, um, to the people themselves begin to gather up these fragments. There's a number of ways. The when I say fragments, what I mean is, here's a situation in which social and psychological reality has just been fractured because the social glue is the religious uh, regulations, the dietary laws. It has been abandoned. Uh, the psychological uh, grounding has been in that system so that as the social arrangement is fractured, the psychological stability gives way. So we have a, a fracturing and a loosening up of social and psychological life in a dangerous way. The people in their own way, Jesus says gather up the fragments, but the people are already busy gathering up the fragments in their own way. They're gathering up the fragments in order to return to the same kind of anthropology from which Jesus just momentarily extricated them. So the text says, the people, seeing this sign that he had given, said, this really is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, who could see they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, escaped back to the hills by himself. This is the way the people gather up the fragments. This is the way the people reconstitute conventional social and psychological arrangements. They want to make him king. By the way, the gospel, the, the, the biblical text is revelatory in passing sometimes. It says they want to make him king. They want to seize him by force and make him king. And we tend to think, well, what, what a strange thing. And we don't realize that that's how all kings were made in the first instance. They were all seized by force. Girard has this quip, you know, that a king is a, is a sacrificial victim with an extended sentence. 
When the crowd decides it wants a king, that's simply the crowd doing what it has to do in order to remain a crowd. And the crowd comes first and the king comes second. And the king is not the one who makes the crowd happen. He is the occasion for its focus. And I think that at, at another level, the historical level, when it says here Jesus performed this marvelous sign and the people who saw it wanted to seize him by force and make him king, you almost here have an anticipation of Constantinian Christendom. The attempt to seize on this figure and make him a, king, a victorious king, you see. And, and it's from this that Jesus flees. Interesting about this passage that a, a, a prominent exegete, F.F. F. Bruce, said this crowd constituted, in Bruce's words, a ready-made guerrilla force to anyone willing to become its leader. And verse 15, Bruce goes on to say, suggests that a leader is just what they were looking for. The king's, the moral valence of the king or the leader isn't so important. Later on in the Passion story, Pilate says, here is the king of the Jews, and they instantly say, crucify him. And he's serving the same function when they say crucify him that he would be if they were saying crown him. Socially, it's the same thing. A, a valiant leader focuses, channels the crowd's passions uh, positively towards himself and the, so, and the cultural uh, falderall and negatively towards the expendable enemies and, and uh, so on. A reviled leader channels all those social passions towards himself in a negative sense. But it doesn't matter because the crowd is held together in either case. The focus of the crowd is maintained in either case. And that's why they wanted a king, take him against his will if need be. I want to pursue this just for a second further uh, in order to take advantage of a couple of interesting etymological uh, things. In the Gospel of Luke, there's another uh, reference to this crowd phenomenon. And it says this, Meanwhile, the people had gathered there uh, in the thousands so that they were treading on one another. Now, that's an interesting reference. They were treading on one another, meaning the social agitation uh, was at a dangerous place where there was a kind of friction being generated, you see, tension within the crowd, which is always a very, very dangerous moment in social arrangements. And Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, and he said this, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, he it's important to notice he says that in the context of this, of this situation. It's a social context in which he delivers that message. The crowd is, is so packed, densely packed that it's beginning to tread on each other, beginning to tread on each other. It's a moment of particular danger, and Jesus says, it's at this moment so to speak, that you have to really be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the keeper of the rules. The Pharisees were the, were the upright ones, the pure ones. It was their business to make sure that the, that the religious and ritual categories were being maintained. And You know the word, the Greek word, kategorein, the verb kategorein means to accuse. It's the root of our word category. 
Uh, the keepers of the categories were those people who knew when a transgression had happened, when a category had been, had been violated, and who could point to the one who had done it, and, and in that gesture, redefine and reinforce the category. So it's as these, this crowd is beginning to come together and generate a kind of agitation that Jesus says, be careful, this, is, this crowd is ripe for a pharisaical sermon. See? A pharisaical sermon that will tell them where the sinners are and who the righteous are and how the righteous have to behave with regard to the sinner or the, sin, the sinner or sinner. And then Jesus says, in order to interpret what he means by use to the Pharisees, he says, that is to say, their hypocrisy. And I want to spend a, a minute or two on this word hypocrisy. One etymological uh, understanding of hypocrite is someone who is a pretender on a stage. But that simply was not the, the understanding of hypocrite pre prevalent in the first century. There is an element of that in this, no doubt. But I think we have to look deeper at what hypocrite means. Uh, the hypocrites, the hypocrite, the word mean, it, the two, two roots are hupo, which means under, and crisis, which means judgment, but also crisis. We could say a hupo crisis is a lesser crisis, is a pseudo crisis. And I think that's important. Uh, I think that's a way of recognizing that one of the effects of Jesus' ministry was to create pseudo-crises. That is to say, uh, lesser crises to which one could resort as a way of avoiding the genuine crisis that was being precipitated by Jesus' life and ministry. A kind of, his, his life was precipitating a kind of existential crisis, into which one could be plunged were there no hypocrisies available, social melodramas available as a distraction. And so the, the impact of his ministry was to create a crowd-driven uh, determination to generate a pseudo-crisis, uh, to re reconstitute this question. Jesus was, would... would, would uh, pose the fundamental existential question and in the face of that people would recoil and say well are you for Rome or Israel are you a sinner or a righteous one in other words a pseudo crisis in order to avoid that uh, Girard has an interesting comment at one point he says how to survive without prohibition he's talking about the modern world by the way so it's very much still with us he says how to survive without prohibitions without sacrificial misrecognition without scapegoat victims this is the real problem. And it is in order to avoid confronting it that our modern rituals of rebellion are perpetuated. It's exactly, in the 20th century, exactly what's happening in these stories. But there's another meaning, I think, to hypo... It's a, a related meaning to hypocrisis. The crisis means judgment, uh, but it's the judgment uh, that occurs at a moment when one's choice is decisive or we would say critical, which comes from the same word. It is the moment when the mimetic contagion of a crowd extinguishes the moral and psychological independence of those it envelops. 
So a hypocrisis in this sense is a mimetic contagion. So a hypocrite would be someone, not someone who thinks one thing and says another, but someone who simply feels and says what the crowd feels and says. You see? Becomes a puppet of the crowd. Or in uh, Jean-Miguel Orgulion's title of his book, The Puppet of Desire. The puppet of the crowd. And he's a better hypocrite the more he's unconscious of the fact that he's doing that. So a hypocrite is a... Is, uh, hypocrisy involves a moral, psychological, and epistemological, meaning how we come to know the world, a moral, psychological, and epistemological subordination to the contagion of the crowd, to the spell of the prince of this world uh, in jo Johannine terms who is, as John points out, the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning. Culture, and I'm a great fan of culture, by the way, so don't get me wrong when I say this, but culture, culture is the molten force of this mimetic contagion, and the spell-binding power of the justifying myths it exudes, cooled and coagulated into religious and social institutions. So the conventional self far from the maddening crowd, is a product of its cultural coagulation. To a large extent, the conventional self is constituted by the same forces that constitute uh, the culture in the original sense, which is this mimetic contagion. The conventional self has always been a hypocrite, etymologically, has always been a hypocrites a product of the consensus reality, a product of cultural uh, structure. The self has always been a hypocrite, a hypocrites, a product of the social <coughs> contagion, either in its molten form or in its, or in its cool and coagulated cultural form. But this hypocrisy is not necessarily morally reprehensible. For the conventional self retains no more memory of the mimetic psychodynamics and sacrificial dramas upon which it depends than the child does of the womb or the birth canal. These things are lost in the mist of time. They're remote. They stand behind the cultural forms that have given shape to the self. And so, As long as the mimetic contagion generated by the social crisis retained this sort of epistemological dominance, there's no conscious hypocrisy. As long as the, as the, as long as the social self doesn't, isn't conscious of the, of the things that gave it structure, there's no conscious hypocrisy. Conscious hypocrisy begins when the prophets announce it to the world. Conscious hypocrisy is a great leap forward. It's an it's a emerging out of the mist of our delusion. So the prophets, in a sense, discover hypocrisy. And the New Testament brings it to a sharp focus. Jesus looks down from the cross and says, they know not what they do. That's really hypocrisy. Not the morally reprehensible hypocrisy, but it is caught up in the hypocrisis.
Paul, in his letters, says, I should not have known what sin was except for the law. I should not, for instance, have known what it means to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law brings sin into being by making it conscious. Once the cross conquered the epistemological dominance of the mimetic contagion, hypocrisy becomes a recognizable moral flaw, a sin. It's not morally reprehensible as long as it's an unconscious phenomenon. But the cross makes it increasingly difficult to uh, participate in it at an unconscious level. There's even a reference to this in chapter 3, and I don't think I quoted this last week when we talked about it. But Jesus says, On these grounds is judgment pronounced on the world. Judgment here is the word crisis. On these grounds is judgment pronounced on the world. That though the light has come into the world, men have shown they prefer darkness to the light because their deeds are evil. I would add here, they don't know they're evil. They don't know they're evil, but they know that the light will make that clear, and so they resist the light. Because their deeds are evil, then Jesus goes on to say, And indeed, everyone who does wrong hates the light and avoids it, for fear his actions should be exposed. And I would say, uh, that's an unconscious response. It's not conscious hypocrisy. But the resistance to, the, to this revelation, to the revelation of the cross, is the is the resistance of, of we who know that it will expose certain things and make our complicity with, with certain conventions morally uh, unacceptable. Bear in mind the hoopo crisis. This is what the crowd does. The crowd, in response to Jesus' message, tr- generates in, in a myriad of ways some kind of hoopo crisis as a way of expelling the as a way of summoning up the the social organism's antibodies to get rid of this thing. You know how the body summons up certain antibodies and tries to reject this alien thing that has invaded it. Likewise, the social organism does this. It gathers up, and it's I think it's the hypocrisis, some kind of crowd contagion. That will, that will regenerate all of those social and psychological configurations that are part of what Paul calls the old anthropos as a way of getting rid of this new man, the, the, the New Testament's new anthropos, namely Jesus and, and uh, his message. Well, what I want to do, again, it's an etymological little uh, technique, but I hope you'll tolerate I'd like to juxtapose uh, to the hypocrisis what I think is offered by the Gospel of John and, which, and what comes out explicitly in the few passages in the book and uh, the letter to Hebrews, and that is the hypostasis. The hypostasis. Uh, our modern, uh, poor, the, the poor devils of the Enlightenment thought that they could avoid the hypocrisis by becoming independent by becoming individuals and uh, therefore uh, resist all of this. And great uh, and sometimes quixotic efforts were made uh, on the part of individuals who were 
avoiding the crowd. Little did they realize that those who successfully avoided the crowd, which were not that many perhaps, were doing so because of the gospel's influence on them and not because of any efforts they were making on the part of individuality. They were avoiding the crowd because the gospel had the, the gospels uh, had awakened enough of an empathy for its victim for them to to find its its justifying myths uninteresting. Uh, but nevertheless, we had this idea in the Enlightenment post Enlightenment world that uh, one could avoid the hoopoe crisis and its and its sort of epistemological. Uh, envelope by, uh, by being independent or being an individual. And I don't think, uh, I think in our day that that whole project of becoming an individual has uh, declared its, its uh, vacuity. Uh, the question is whether, the question is how will the self be constituted? In, re, in rapport with what constituting other will the self ground itself? Uh, will the self be? Will the self have the uh, the social contagion as its as its uh, constituting other, or will there or will there be some other constituting reality? The Christian alternative to the hoopo crisis, once unconscious and increasingly less so, is the hoopostasis, namely the uh, standing under the figure of Christ, who stands under the figure of God, who is his Father. The psychological, this is most of what I've been trying to do in the last sessions and will continue to try to do, is to point out the psychological singularity of the New Testament. It's in sync with the Bible as a whole, but it is, it is singular. Uh, the self is constituted either by the crowd, the hoopo crisis, or by another who is outside the crowd, who is not a spokesman for the crowd or a representation of the crowd's uh, meaning and so on. And that is the crucified one. And I think, I, I, I run the risk of sounding a little Kierkegaardian here, but I think those are the only two alternatives. By the way, you know, Hypostasis comes up in the uh, book of Hebrews, translated by King James Version as person. It says Jesus was the Hypostasis of God. He was the one who stood under or represented God perfectly. He was the perfect Hypostasis of God uh, to stand under. And therefore, he stood, he understood. God by standing under God in the same way that we understand Christ by standing under Christ. We understand uh, the Christian revelation by standing under it. We understand the mystery of the Eucharist by standing under it, etc., etc., etc. This standing under, this subordinating of oneself is anathema to the modern world, but it's the, it's, it's the, uh, it's the lifeboat out of this mess that we're in. So Gabriel Marcel put his finger on it when he said it involves the subordination of the self to a superior reality, a reality at my deepest level more truly me than I am myself, and a reality which abolish and a subordination which abolishes the tension between the self and the other. The problem, of course, is the residual power of the old anthropos. 
especially its resurging power during episodes of social breakdown. This is what's happening uh, in the Gospels. The feeding of the multitude shook the psychological foundations, and the response to the crowd was to try to reconstitute itself by, by grabbing Jesus and making him king. There's little to suggest in that act, in that little reference to them. It's, it's an anthropologically very interesting reference that they tried to seize him by force and make him king. But there's little to suggest the anxiety that, that lies behind that. There is earlier on the story that reference to them milling around and so on. But we have to read the psychological anxiety into it because, and that's really appropriate, because the crowd's response is precisely the kind of response required in order to prevent the apprehension they're experiencing from becoming conscious. That is to say, they try to seize Jesus and make him king, not because they say, oh, I'm feeling anxiety, therefore I better satisfy this anxiety, let's create a culture again, let's have a king, let's you know, start from square one. None of that is conscious. As a matter of fact, this, what they do, they might as well have been trying to lynch somebody, which is a, another version of what they were trying to do. It's not a conscious act. It's an act designed to keep consciousness from happening. So there's no sense of the, of, the, of the apprehension that has driven them to this act. But you do get a sense of it when it comes to the disciples. Disciples are, uh, are midway people. Uh, from they, they, disciples are people who are living somewhere in between the old Anthropos and the new Anthropos. They know they can't go back. And they, so they, occasionally they might resort to these, these, uh, these ploys, but never satisfactorily, and always with moral remorse when it's over with. And, so they're caught, and, then, and then they're caught in this existential angst of being in the middle. And you get that in this gospel. While the crowd wanted to, they knew exactly what to do. There was no hesitation. There was no Hamlet light ringing of hands. Bango, they're going to get a king. They're, going to, they're ready. Jesus flees, and then he's gone. And as long as Jesus is there, it's like Moses in, in the Exodus story. As long as Moses is there, things are reasonably calm in the early stages of the Exodus story. Jesus leaves as when Moses goes up the mountain, and the anxieties uh, return. And here's what you get in this story. Joseph, Jesus has gone. That evening, the disciples went down to the shore of the lake and got into a boat to make for Capernaum on the other side of the lake. It was getting dark by now, and Jesus had still not rejoined them. I think we have to think of that sentence as, as one of those, uh, the kind of typical thing in the Hebrew scriptures, the parallelism of the, of the thing. It was getting dark, and Jesus had not rejoined them. It's, it's a way of saying the same thing twice. It was getting dark and Jesus had not rejoined them. That's precisely the problem. As long as he was with them, he is there. They are, they, they ha, they are substantiated. They are, they are the hypostasis of Jesus' uh, revelation, of his personality. And as long as he's with them, they're grounded. And when he's gone, it gets dark. So, it was getting dark by now and Jesus has still not rejoined them. The wind was strong, the sea was getting rough, and they had ro rowed three or four mile miles out. So, there you have the picture. They're too far from shore to go back. It's getting dark, the sea is rough, 
The wind is howling. And that's the existential picture of what their life was like. They didn't try to seize king, Jesus and make him king. It was too late for them. There was no going back. And this, is, this really is a, this little story is a prelude to the resurrection story. Because at that moment, they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, walking on the water is amazing here. Jesus, here's how it could have been. It could have been, Jesus could have come out there and said, look guys, you shouldn't be out here. Bad weather. Be safe. Go to shore. Build a dike. Uh, you know, get some maps. Uh, learn to be weather reporters. Uh, you know, whatever it is, you know. Set up a system of taking care of this. Build better boats. All of it, which is a way of how do you cope with this thing? See, he just and the water, you know, in the in the biblical imagination and in others, water is the primal chaos. So to be out in the deep and the and the sea exploding in its confusion is to be in the midst of that. See, and Jesus walks on it. He simply, he says, in a way, he says, "Look, you don't have to be afraid of this." You don't have to be. You don't have to set up a, a, a conventional culture in order to avoid this. You, there, you know that poem of Rilke's where he says, "Everything is falling." I've quoted this so many times. Everything is falling. It's now fall. The leaves are falling. The rain is falling. You are falling, and I am falling. Everything is falling, and there there are those hands we cannot fall through. And and this is, I think, the message of this. You don't have. You can be in the midst of this radical instability and be stable if you are in the hypostatic relationship to your Creator. You don't. This gospel has to do, as all of them have to do, with how to live without a conventional culture. And it's very important to us that it has to do with that because we need to know that just as fast as we can know it. Because conventional culture is deconstructing under the revelatory power of the scriptures. He said to them, Do not be afraid. I am. He uses the ego emi, which is the Greek translation of what Yahweh had said in the burning bush. He uses the God's name. Ego and me. I am who am. He says, I am. And this, for any Greek-speaking Jew of the first century, would simply be scandalous. It was scandalous. I am. You find your grounding here. This is the experience of, the first, of this evangelist. This evangelist is writing about his experience and the experience of his community. His experience was, we had that we, we had that. Uh, angst and that confusion and then we realized that we did not have to resort to culture we did not have to resort to the old forms we, all we had to do was be uh, in discipleship relationship to Christ and we could walk on that water back to the uh, crowd though the crowd follows Jesus they find him and they say um and he says to them, and, they, and so they say, oh, we, fi we finally found you. And he says, you're looking for me uh, because I made bread available. You're looking, you, you came to me because of this 
this uh, thing I did. But you've gotten it wrong. You think it has to do with bread. He, he says, do not work for food that cannot last. But when he says, You're, you've come for, uh, don't work for food that will not last, I think we have to read it in light of them trying to make him king as well. In other words, the, what we do in order to reconstitute ourselves, nourish ourselves, socially and psychologically, as well as, as, as uh, you know, in terms of food, caloric intake, but he's on the metaphor of food, so he says the kind of food the Son of Man is offering you is eternal life. Uh, he says you should work for that food, and they seize upon this idea of working for something because that seems to be something they can talk about. So they say, oh, great. Work. What is the work we want to do? And this is, you know, this is a very fair, fa pharisaical, this is not a pharisaical crowd. The Pharisees were the, really, they were a, a cut above the crowd uh, in most regards, but uh, but it's a very pharisaical response. Okay, fine, work. What, what's the work going to be? Uh, and he says, here's the work that God wants. Believe in me. Believe in the one God sent. That's the work. This word believe is central to John's understanding of, of Jesus. Believe. And you will have eternal life. Eternal life here means uh, not... It's, uh, eternal life is distinguished from, say, biological life or psychological life in that, not because it lasts longer, but because it's freer. It's, more, it's radically free. That's what eternal life is. A, a, a life that's so radically free that it's neither quenched nor coward by death. So he says, you want that kind of life? Believe in me. Now this is John's, this is the uh, evangelist talking about his own experience and the experience of his community. It's not him dreaming up theology. You want that kind of life? Here's what you must do. And, and as they're rolling up their sleeves, he says, believe. And this is very Pauline, you know, the Whole, Paul's whole thing about faith. Believe? That's it? You mean that's it? Well, easier said than done. What does believe mean? Believe is a radical verb in John. Believe means to break yourself down, to remove your, to, to take off your own skin. To believe means to stop being who you are as an entity and to become a, a composite of yourself and Christ. It's a radical, uh, shattering thing to believe. You know, the root of the word in English, it goes way back, but the root of it is leaf, which is, our, which is the origin of the word, both the word life and the word love. To be, we, we come fully alive when we believe. If we only could get a hold of the depth of that word. When we believe in an other. And most of the time, the other that we believe in is the cultural composite. And the, and, uh, and the others 
in our family circle uh, with in whom we with whom we've had these intimate rapport and so on those are the those are the sources of our belief about the cosmos and uh, and the new testament announces that all of those arrangements are going to be thrown into crisis by the by the christian revelation and so, and all of us will be thrown into disarray by by that and if we are to find a grounding, it will be a hypostatic grounding. It will be standing under or believing in the one who is outside of it all. If we could, like I say, if we could get, understand this verb to believe at its radical depth, we would see why it was so shocking and why Jesus and John, Johanna and Jesus says that's all you have to do. If you do that, the moral changes, the psychological changes, the social changes will follow in due course and they will be much more profound than they would be if you just set out to make moral changes and psychological changes and all that. This, this is how it happens. This is the... Uh, and, and for John, the word believe is always a verb. It's never a noun. He doesn't talk about faith. He talks about believing and he doesn't talk about believing in the abstract. He talks about believing in. There's always a preposition in the Greek, which means it always has to do with a person. You can't just believe in some general way, or you can't just have faith in some general way. It's believing in a person. This is the radical thing about John's Gospel. To believe is to exchange one's, what Bultmann calls one's whence, one's origins, one's... one's uh, psychogenesis for another. Despite their penchant for avoiding the evidence of the mimetic construction of the self, we can thank the psychological sciences for revealing in their explication of the transference the fact that the original self is mimetically constituted and that no serious renewal of the subject can occur without a transference of the mimetic problematic from the original model to another. 